Welcome everybody to Recovery Machine. My name's Nathan, joined as always by co-host Corey. How you doing, co-host Corey? Hey Nathan, I'm good. Good to see you. It's been a while. It's been an even longer while since we've been here with a guest, so I'm really excited to be back doing this with you today. Yeah, me too. Uh, we are slowing down a little bit. That's because we're very, very busy. But yeah. we have uh, we have located a guest that we've had to hunt down for a long time. We finally captured her. Her name is Amber. <laughs> How are you doing, Amber? <laughs> I'm doing fantastic, Nathan. That's good to hear. Me and Amber went to high school together back <clears throat> in uh, back in the old days there in Coraloo in Quinell, and she was a friend of mine then. Awesome person in uh, in many respects, all respects, I would say. And no, she, <laughs> she has, uh, she has went on to uh, do all sorts of cool things, but what we want to ask her about is her experience in the advanced care paramedic world. Can you tell us a little bit about, uh, what that is and what you do and what a, what a day in the life of an advanced care paramedic looks like? There's a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> well, give us a summary. <laughs> so I've been an advanced care paramedic for over 20 years, and I work in Edmonton. It's a municipal system, so we're quite busy. We were talking before from the beginning of my job when I started in 2001 to now. It's changed like insane, um, but we'll talk about that after. But basically, like what we... What I do, and most people, I think a lot of people don't actually understand what we do on the road and the skills that we actually have. So as an advanced care paramedic, obviously we get a call, um, we respond to somebody's house, a ditch, a apartment, beside uh, the street, and then we see people like in their worst possible space, basically. Nobody calls us when they're happy, right. <laughs> unfortunately. And then uh, as an advanced care paramedic, I have uh, there's a primary care paramedics and advanced care paramedics. And as an advanced care paramedic, I can do advanced airway skills, right? Call thyrotomies. <laughs> I had to sound that out. And <laughs> um, intubation and cardiac drugs and uh, narcotics and all those things. So you could set so, up IVs en route to the hospital, yeah. things like that? Yeah, we do IVs and advanced cardiac life support and give all advanced care drugs. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Corey was an emergency ER nurse. Um, so yeah. Corey, you're probably very familiar. You probably worked with a lot of uh, paramedics over the years. Oh, yeah. Uh, I wasn't familiar with uh, the distinction between a paramedic and an advanced care par paramedic, but uh, I was surprised at all the things you guys can do. It's very cool, actually. We're a mobile ER, basically, yeah. <laughs> especially in Edmonton, like we're quite advanced with our cardiac protocols and stuff like that. So that's quite nice. Yeah. So basically, I mean, that is a massive undertaking in that the variety, basically all you know is that you're showing up to an emergency. So you've got, yeah. I mean, this could be a, a weather exposure event. Are you in the city generally or is it, is it Northern Alberta or? I work in I work in the city, and then I also work on indigenous reserves up northern Alberta, as well as some I do some industrial clinic stuff. So I kind of have a bunch of variety. So I work road EMS, and I work clinic EMS, and they're very different roles. The clinic stuff is more kind of along the nursing aspect. We do a lot more primary care stuff. So like a clinic, like a doctor's office, you walk in, I have this problem. But we also do a ton of we do all the emergencies that come in as well. But at right. Municipal EMS in Edmonton, I respond to everything from car accidents to heart attacks to strokes to a ton of overdoses, yeah. <laughs> yeah. to a lot of mental health stuff, falls. The way I would describe the the job as I know it and remember it would be that you were sort of a self-sustained life support unit as well. Yeah. That if there's no one else around, if there's no physician around, you can you can sustain someone's life within yeah. a set of parameters or a framework for independently. What, yeah. what was it that made you decide to take the move from being a primary care paramedic into advanced care? Was that just a natural progress in your career or was there something that kind of spurred that on? 
Well, it's funny when I was uh, when I was younger, when you know, when you're 20 and you think like, because I did debate on um, becoming a doctor, a physician, and a, an emergency doc, and I thought, oh, seven years is so long. <laughs> Why would I want to go to school like that? You know, when you're young, and then it's poof, it's gone. So I was like, oh, paramedic, advanced care paramedics, so you can do a ton of things, and the skill level that we have is quite high, and what we can do. And I'm not, don't worry, I'm not comparing myself to a doctor by any means, <laughs> but things that we can do to like. Excuse me, like you said, uh, sustain life. I like to say no one ever dies in the back of the ambulance. (laughs) They die at the hospital. Um, (laughs) But the things that you can do or that we can do are quite amazing. And I always, I really like the autonomy of being a paramedic. Uh, We don't get, you're not micromanaged. You're not, you do what you want. I control my call. I control the scene. Might make me seem a bit like a control freak. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, it's well. nice to have that uh, that ability because, as you know, probably in the hospital, Corey, you have things that you can't do by yourself, and I can do everything by myself. I guess as long as it's within our protocol. Yeah, so absolutely. that's kind of what drew me to it. That I really like that being able to figure something out and then treat it, and it's exciting. It's always different. It's not the same day. <clears throat> you get to work with different people. Yeah. Let's just do a lot of cool things. And originally I was like, you get to do cool stuff. And then I realized you gotta do cool stuff that often. <laughs> you do a ton of mental health stuff, and I probably should have done some more counseling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Well, this is this is the age, uh, Amber, where uh, you start to realize the importance of that stuff, right? Like, I mean, I never yeah. even Christ, I, like you look back 20 years and you don't consider mental health. You just don't like, I, yeah. I mean, you hear about it, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. And then you hit yeah. 40 and I mean, it, uh, it kind of moves to the top of the priority list. At least it has with me. So that kind of leads us into a question that probably people are wondering. And, and that's how in such a position where, yeah, you're, it, it's very interesting. You're, you're exposed to a lot of different events but like uh, like Corey, you would be exposed to a, a tremendous amount of emergency situations that could, depending on your genetics and you know your the way that you're brought up and all sorts of different factors, uh, lend itself to the to uh, experiencing stress and post traumatic stress. So I looked up the stats quickly, and I'm not sure how accurate they are, but they say generally one in four paramedics across the board will experience some form of PTSD in their lifetime. Um, would you say that's accurate? Oh yeah. hundred percent. I'd probably yeah. say it's almost a hundred percent of people. Okay. Like I, if you actually broke it down and you talk to people about it, cause I think in, like you said, generationally it changes. I think if you pick people from my generation of EMS, when I started, it would be much different than the people that are starting now. Huge. Like we're all super damaged, <laughs> but we bottle it all up, you know? Right. Yeah. We still have those skills. Gen X still has those skills. Yeah. Yeah. We have those skills to push it all down and be like, oh, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but I find the newer people, they do not have those, that ability. It seems like it shows more or they express it more. Right. Whereas medics that are like 20 year medic and stuff, you can see it, but they won't particularly be as expressive about it. Right. Yeah. So we'll, we'll die of cancer 10 years earlier. Uh, yeah. You know, that's the trade. Or suicide. <laughs> or suicide. Yeah. That's suicide's probably pretty, a, pretty high. Yeah, I bet. So one of the things we were talking about, I think we discussed this a little bit, Corey, is is how much, well, I think it's actually your, you brought this up, Corey, is, is the stigma within the culture of the paramedic world. Is it something that's openly discussed now? Is there active programs to kind of mitigate the damage that occurs over time how does that work well funny enough i've been on our peer support team pretty much for 20 years and uh you probably have heard of the cism the mitchell model that's something that we have done for years in ems so you would have a critical event we get together and we do a diffusing we talk about it and then it's like a set based series of questions that you would ask and you know everybody gets a chance to talk and it does have very good outcomes and it was uh part of the military started it uh, so that was kind of what we've always done forever because there was nothing else. And it does work, but then it was also like 
peer led and it was if you ha- if I had a call what I perceive as something traumatizing isn't the same as what you would think is traumatizing so we kind of you know there's a big top 10 list of things it's usually always MCIs uh, mass casualty incidents or a lot of times pediatric uh, deaths those things that's one of the top 10s so those would always flag and you'd be like contacted by a peer support member or like a murder or something like that, or police action, something, you know, that affected one of your members. And then we really, I actually was part of our mental health task force that we developed the whole program. And what we wanted and what was, we we proposed and the HS took over and things changed a lot, but uh, to be able to have resources, because we don't have psychological resources, to go and see a therapist, we get 250 a year is what we used to get. And that's one session. And if you guys probably know, because you've been to therapy, <laughs> it's really expensive. And then um, you couldn't get WCB was not a thing for any mental health injuries before probably even just the last five years. If you tried oh. to put a claim in, it was just you would get pushback on it. And they'd be like, well, you never reported it like this. You know, you got to report every single thing. So it makes it a really challenging. And I think medics on the road are like, well, I'm not going to put in for every single thing that happens because it's a lot daily, right? You get assaulted physically, verbally, you know, and those things do add up, but you wouldn't think to put them in as an RLS. So I can't think of what that stands for. <laughs> it's a, uh, an incident, basically, that's something that yeah. caused you trauma. Because you just are like, whatever, that's part of the job. And that used to be the mindset was, oh, it's part of the job to get spit at, kicked and hit and verbally assaulted on a daily basis and our supervisors at the time and this is 10 let's say years ago ish they would be like oh it's a big deal yeah right <laughs> that's yeah. what you signed up for Did I? so it was frowned upon in a way to actually come forward and the people that did did get uh ostracized i guess i would say and but then like i said we've done a lot in the last eight years, 10 years to change that and change the stigma and say it's all right to actually talk about these things and to talk about calls and to be vulnerable, which is not a thing in EMS because you got a whole bunch of A type personalities. that (laughs) There's no, not a lot of softness over there, you know, or a lot of forgiving. And then I think a lot of it is also, it's really hard to drop your wall because if you do and you let that out, it all comes out and it's crushing. So I think it's kind of like mitigation is really challenging. Like we use a lot of dark humor and like I said, the resources are slowly coming back there. Now I think we have a thousand. And if you have a psychological injury that WCB determines is an injury, then you get all the counseling you want. And then we have like a reintegration program and, but you have to prove it. Right. And so that I think is still a bit of a barrier. But I would also like to see our entire staff has to go see a psychologist at least once a year. I think that's a big thing that we just should be mandatory. And mm-hmm. that was one of our recommendations. And then like a fitness test, which we've taken away. And like, yeah, there's a bunch of things that, you know, they just, they don't do anything. <laughs> mm. I'd say it's getting worse now. Wow. That's surprising. Yeah. I uh, I have a few questions, I, but just off the top of my head, imagine if there was an in-house psychologist, like imagine if a, with, with the money that is spent uh, after the fact in, in compensating and getting people back to work or uh, the money that is spent while people are off work, et cetera. Yep. And we, we, we can all think of the, how those costs can accrue. Uh, imagine mm-hmm. if there was a psychologist on staff that you could pick up the phone or you could go back to, when you go back to the station, who was, yeah you could reach or, or connect with before the end of your shift. Uh, that is a like, recommendation and you can actually do that now. Can you? Okay. But it's a lengthy yes. process. It's not yeah. like 20 minutes. It's going to be hours kind of idea. So that I think is a bit of a deterrent. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask you just back to the debriefing. One of the, one of the experiences that I had a, like, like you said, and no knock on, the the field that is full of type a personalities no knock on the type a personality but with that and with ego and with that wall that that can go up there can be a lot of fear there so the nature of debriefing within a team where there are a lot of those types of of personalities i see that as a as a challenge that you had mentioned but also the challenge of when the debrief 
the debrief can't always happen right away after. Ideally, it does. But I certainly encountered a lot of experiences where it didn't happen till the end of the shift or even sometimes, unfortunately, until the next day. Uh, yeah. And you have to go to a call right away or you have yeah. you know, the, ne the next <laughs> thing happens. How do you manage yeah. how do you manage those moments? Because for me, those were such difficult moments. Well, that I think it depends on the person you are. Um, sometimes you get forced into doing them. This is, like I said, they're much better now. So now if ever you said, I cannot go on another call, I have this traumatic event, you would not, they wouldn't force you to, um, or they wouldn't, you wouldn't not say forced, you wouldn't get belittled into <laughs> going on that call opposed to, because they're not like, no, you have to go do it. They're like, well, come on, you sure you're fine. Like it's no big deal. They don't do that anymore. So that's, I would say, not a thing. If you actually say you want, you need time, um, I think that's actually very well received. But when it did happen, what does happen is you go and you go to that next patient and you treat them poorly. <laughs> you're angry. You, you're not treating them the way you should be. They're not getting your full skills or your full, you're going to, you don't have any empathy, right? Usually you're just, you're just so like stressed. So you just kind of go through the call, I guess. Sometimes I'm pretty good at compartmentalizing. And I'm one of those people that things don't bother me as much. Only like certain, I have very certain triggers like everybody. So it just kind of depends. Usually most people are professional enough. You can tuck that away. And then it's after work that you just crumble. <laughs> or two weeks later, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. We've seen that in uh, healthcare all over the place. I, I just yeah. wanted to ask you about uh, if you're familiar with the, the terms like big T's and little T's. We've talked about this before in trauma. Do you know what I mean by that? Things that really affect you and things that are little ones that just keep eating away kind of idea? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And um, I kind of recognize that in what you're saying before. Uh, I think this is a something that nurses face as well, especially ER nurses in that a lot of times it's not one big event that is crushing that has happened. And I've seen that in yeah. like uh, uh, clients that we've worked with before, but uh, most of the time it's the culmination of little things that are, that are not really something that you would be able to make a report about. It's just, yeah. it, it's, it's like the atmosphere just gets heavier and heavier and heavier until one day the final little T drops on you and you lose your shit. Yeah. You're like, oh. exactly. Yeah. Um, Had that. <laughs> well, yeah. You turn to, you know, uh, like in me and Corey's case, uh, we turn to coping mechanisms that work in the short term uh, and keep you going, but are, are bad for the long term. So yeah, I was just curious about that. Yeah, no, I really agree. You know, it's, I, it's not funny, but I think a big trauma is almost, I would hate to say easier, but I think it's something it's easier to wrap your head around. You know, you see a mass casualty incident, like the tornado or something like that, right? Or like 9-11, it's just like, it's such a big thing that everybody experienced and everybody has it. And it, it's kind of almost easier to let go of because it's just one thing. And that's not saying you can always, but when there's like that constant build, like you said, of those things, you just can't pinpoint it. So you can't go oh, it's, this is the reason I need to focus on that. And I need to figure out, just pick it apart and analyze what's it bothering me. It's with the little traumas. It's just, you pick up the same person every single fucking day. You, yeah. pay, they called you a, this, they called you a C word. They said, they're going to kill your mother, you know, like yeah, yeah. every single day, or you see like elder abuse and you're just like, oh, what's wrong with the system? It's those things I think that are definitely, I'd agree. Those are a little bit, those are harder and probably do cause more long-term PTSD for a lot of people. Yeah. You, That's you probably got... all my era of people are all that like low level, just yeah. <laughs> yeah. the big things are like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> it, it's interesting that you uh, framed it that way because that's, that's something that a lot of uh, leading psychiatrists have now kind of uh, come together to agree upon is that whether you're doing work on yourself or whether you're working with a client, it is actually uh, like you said, the tornadoes, those are, those are hard, but it, much harder to identify where problems are coming from when it's an accumulation effect from little traumas. Yeah. So the, yeah, yeah. it's uh, kudos uh, for picking that out. That's, 
that seems to align with the evidence. Uh, it's 20 years of damage, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Amber, I was just, as we're talking, I'm starting to think about some paramedics that I used to work with every <laughs> single shift and, and just some remarkable people and, and some, just some of the most skilled people that I worked with. And then I also think about some people where I can recognize in them the unspoken effect of what they were doing at the job, like the, the toll yeah. it was taking. And because I was trying to tread water myself, I certainly, yeah. and these, the people that I'm thinking of were probably a generation ahead of me or, or had been in the field for maybe 15 years longer or more. Uh, and I wasn't about to sort of say, God, how are you doing today? Yeah. <laughs> but in a more lateral way, how do you, how do you do that? Or do, have you found a way to communicate with your coworkers when you see the toll? You know, it's funny you say that. I have a very unique outlook, I think, or a unique way because I worked full-time for over 12 years, full-time EMS. And I've, like I said, I've done all the CISM and I've done a ton of stuff with mental health and I had my own issues and some pretty significant that I was off for six months and some really where I, you know, I look back and I'm like, why didn't anybody ask me? Like my, everything changed, right? Your personality and you know, getting complaints and never had complaints before in my life, you know, and no supervisors, nothing reached out, nobody did anything. Once I was, you know, in the healing process, and I thought about it after I'm like, nobody cared. They all just were like, I'm just gonna back away, right. So after that, I kind of was like, huh. so when I go back, and then now, like I said, I, I don't work full time, and I haven't worked full time since 2015. So when I go back, I have a unique perspective of I don't have that trauma that you have every day of working and that complete wall is up and I can see it in my coworkers. I can look at them and be like, you're about to go off. You're going to lose your shit. You can just see it on them. And then like my friends, I literally just ask them, hey, how you doing? I can tell that you've changed and you're, you seem very agitated. You're angry. Like, and I have been there long enough and I know people well enough and I'm just whatever I'm going to ask how you doing <laughs> and it's easy for me because I'm not in it but I think when you're in it it's a real challenge because you're just doing everything to protect yourself at the time you know you're just I can't deal with your shit because I got too much of my own and then if I try and help you it's just it's a profession where you're constantly giving and getting everybody's taking from you. So you're never giving anything back so when you're trying to ask somebody else you're just like oh, I just got to give more so it's a real challenge, I think, to do that. And like I said, because I'm not there, it's easier because I actually have that capacity now because I'm not like, compare, I'm just holding on, which I think a lot of people, unfortunately, in emergency services, they are basically, it's a day-to-day, -day, I'm going to go to work, I'm going to get through work, and hopefully we'll have fun and hopefully nothing terrible happens. And, you know, like I think there's a lot of, you just push everything down, right? So yeah. I didn't go back and just giving people that outlet. And it's kind of funny when I go back, I do find a lot of people are happy to see me and want to talk to me about it. Cause I think it's nice to see somebody that isn't in it all the time. And right. I'm always happy when I go back. <laughs> so, <laughs> they're like, Hey, <laughs> yeah. I noticed the same thing. And uh, I noticed the same thing in pharmacy colleagues. I can, I can pick out the pharmacist who's working full time. I can yeah. pick out the manager just by looking at them, I can yeah. see that they have a look in their eyes where they've been in the zone for too long. Yeah. And it's like, they're starting to, uh, it's almost like a dissociation, you know, mm -hmm. they're, they're not, they're no longer really present. They're yeah. at maximum kind of the shield. Like you, you said, their shields are up type of thing. And, uh, it's interesting that you made that call for your own mental health and backed off from the full-time position. I did the same thing. Corey did the same thing. And we've been advocates for, you know, people who are in those professions. I mean, mine is nothing like yours as far as uh, uh, trauma is concerned, but any high stress and it, it's stress. Yeah. And if uh, some people can take it and that's, that's totally fine. Some people thrive in those environments, but it, yeah, it's, you kind of got to be uh, monitoring yourself and then making those adjustments. So I'm, yeah. I'm glad to hear that you did that. So am I. <laughs> I feel bad every time I go back. I'm just, I couldn't imagine doing this full time. Like I just, nope. Yeah. I mean, 
doesn't it seem kind of bananas that we would even try? Yeah. When you think well, about like it. We do 12 hour shifts, right? You do 40, uh, what is it? 48 hour shifts. That's what we do, right? Four on four off. Yeah. And you're just, and it isn't just the calls. It's more like, there's a lot of politics, you know, that the system is failing probably as you know, like the whole entire healthcare system is crumbling right now. Yeah. So you're just like nonstop. And then support from the management's not there. And the morale is not real high. So that makes it even oh. harder to go to work. Absolutely. Yeah. Those factors are uh, taking a toll. It seems like on a weekly basis now, I'm seeing things that, uh, you know, uh, we're sending people to the ER, we're, we're seeing them again in an hour, uh, you know, yeah. looking at them like, what the hell is going on? You could tell the person needs to, like, they need an IV two days ago to save their leg. And they were yeah. just dismissed, you know, like, these are the types of things that I'm seeing. And what uh, I guess that's that's another thing we wanted to address and that you mentioned earlier was uh, the, the changes that you've seen. I think when we talked before, you said a lot has changed in the last seven years, I think you said. And then, but let's let's say over the whole course of your your career, like what uh, what have been the most salient points? I think in Edmonton, because that's where I've worked urban EMS, they Edmonton used to not have a very high uh, opiate use. It wasn't our population, like our downtown population was more uh, alcoholism. And then you'd have throwing a little crack and some meth. Like it was alcohol was number one. And then it would end, I think. And then meth really did a big explosion there for a while. And that's like a whole different dynamic of dealing with, but not dying from meth per se. Usually that's going to harm us. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, and then when I left in 2015 is probably when fentanyl started actually really go. It started getting bad. Because uh, I worked downtown for five years, 2000, uh, like four to 2010, and the overdoses were like, yeah, we do one every now and then, but it was very uncommon. It wasn't, you didn't do them. And then we had a really good needle recovery program. The needle exchange was really great. We had uh, like um, the buses would go around and they'd go through the whole uh, downtown population and they would be, they'd, you know, you know, handing out needles. And there was, a, it seemed like there was a lot more harm reduction mm -hmm. at that time but again i think less of a problem and i don't know if that was those two went hand in hand but it seemed like the streets were cleaner there wasn't ivs every needles everywhere sorry and then i come back i was like i said I left 2015 i came back and i remember my first coming back in um uh, my first shift back i think in like november or something like that and we were downtown by the new arena and there was needles everywhere and I was like, what is happening? And then it's just like that now all over. There's needles everywhere. That used to not be a thing. So within 10 years, things just, and now we go to, I don't even know what the stats are. I meant to actually look them up, but there's got to be over like at least 30 overdoses a day. Like I did a, sh I wasn't even working downtown. I got pulled downtown within two hours. I did four overdoses. Jesus Christ. And those are all nar like giving Narcan, getting up, fuck you, walk away. Yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> one was course. actually dead. And then <laughs> one like we picked up and then we he wouldn't wake up, gave him tons of Narcan. And the new fentanyl is really, really strong. So you got to give crazy amounts of Narcan. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> we get him out to the truck because he wasn't waking up, which is real annoying because he's in the basement, whatever, drag him out, wakes up in the back. Then he tells us, no, I'm not going, F you, and he gets out. <laughs> And yeah. we're like, dude, you're in your underwear. You can't go back. <laughs> you're wearing the middle of the street. No, I'm yeah. leaving. And then, you know, just stuff like that. You're just, come on. <laughs> it's out of control. Yeah. But it's everywhere. I don't know if we're talking about, like, the populations. People think it's only, like, all oh, those are just junkies and, you know, homeless people. And it's not. It's everybody. There's people like me. There's people like you. There's 60-year-olds. There's... 10 year olds you know everybody's doing pills and things they don't know and a lot of people are a lot of it's they're smoking it now too like they'll smoke meth and it's called down and you're just like why are you smoking meth with fentanyl it doesn't even make any sense but <laughs> yeah, yeah and it's the, just yeah it's nuts the other thing that uh, people don't seem to understand uh to add to your comment about you know it's not just all uh the people on the street that you're seeing yeah, uh, like we've had people on the show, and they're you know what you you know kind of like the the 
in the upper echelon of society, but because yeah. the cocaine supply is now so unpredictable that even people mm -hmm. who can afford to get really good cocaine are sometimes dying. And, yeah. and this is uh, something that these are, this is a specific type of tragedy, not because these lives are more valuable or anything like that, but it's because this person, because of the, the shock, the surprise, the, it does a different type of damage, you know, where yeah. uh, here's a person who uh, like we, we had, uh, we've had two guests who have lost uh, the one guest lost both their sons. Uh, another guest lost a high profile uh, um, sports writer was her, uh, her husband in, uh, in uh, Vancouver lost him three daughters, you know, and I, like, and it was, it was like a one-off thing. He just kind of, yeah. I, I, you know, like, these are the the things that aren't getting kind of factored into any of the responses. Um, yeah. And it's also something that safe supply really can't address. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You're not going as, as an, your <laughs> average person. You're not going to the safe supply for some Coke. You're like, Hey, I just want to have a good night, not die. Yeah. Ooh, but yeah. I'm not really an addict. So, but can I just still have it? <laughs> right. And they'll, they'll Can't do that. look at you like you're a crazy person. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> So that's an issue with that. Uh, so, so basically, I looked up uh, I looked up the stats on, on Edmonton specifically, and I was shocked. I had no idea that uh, like you, Edmonton has basically given Vancouver a run for their money in this category now. And which is uh, insane because that's never been a thing. Like Vancouver's always had a, like a heroin and uh, like more needle based stuff, opiates, yep. and like. Edmonton was never like that. Yeah. So has that, uh, if you're having to address that many overdoses, like you said, you're doing four in, in, in two hours, for instance, how is this affecting the rest of the population on top of our toppling healthcare system? You know, what about the person oh. who is not uh, <laughs> using drugs? Uh, what happens yeah. to them? What about you mean your parents that are having a heart attack or a stroke and the ambulances are being wasted with people that are just overdosing constantly? Well, Ooh, that's a slippery slope. <laughs> what I mean is um, how is it impacting uh, your ability to respond to these other people? Like, are you seeing frustration from people in, in your response time and stuff because of this? Oh God. Yeah. Well, you see that, like, I think with our patients, plus with us as staff, and I'm talking about your downtown population, your people that are good, like you're what you would quote, say would be a junkie or an addict that they, that you go to daily. And it's just so disheartening because you're just wasting your time with these people that don't care when you know there's sick people that aren't getting help. And because the way our system works and most EMS systems, they'll pull all the resources into the busiest places and the busiest places are generally your downtown core. So you have, and cities are huge now. So you have all these resources stuck at hospitals for one. And especially if you have somebody that's overdosed and they're not coming back with Narcan, you have to bag them like they're resource heavy. Yeah. They take up a bed, they take our time. We have to sit with them because you can't drop them off in a waiting room because they might go down again. So you got to sit with them. So you've taken an ambulance off. And then once they get in the back, then they're taking up a bed. Cause again, you can't just leave them. Um, so they, they just, the resources are being taxed quite heavily. So you get, people aren't getting responses. Like in Edmonton, we've had, well, you probably heard of code reds there, there when there's no ambulances left on the road there every day that happens every single day. And then we have response times of 30 or 40 minutes and it's Jesus terrible and then i work on a pru it's called it's a paramedic response unit so it's a single person unit and we use those to go to different calls so we go to all calls by ourselves so then i sit on scene with somebody having a heart attack by myself treating them for over half an hour you know it's wow. just it's insane and that's terrible and like that also for my own personal or all of us that do the PRUs is quite stressful or having to do a cardiac arrest with you and just the fire department or it's a lot it's a lot yeah <laughs> so a lot of people aren't getting resources that should be getting resources basically right for something like a, a percentage of the population that is doing this to themselves constantly and it's very I think you do get a lot of anger in EMS a lot of 
people and same with staff in the ER. Yeah. How would you not, how would you not get jaded in that situation? Yeah. Yeah. So you're very jaded. (laughs) Taxing the uh, already taxed resources further. Me and Corey discussed this in kind of a thought experiment that I got all sorts of (laughs) uh, hate online for. But, uh, (laughs) and it was just purely, uh, I mean, it was just, uh, I was not advocating this as a, as a a specific policy, but what uh, we were talking about was uh, almost having a do not resuscitate order in place for some people who are, were using fentanyl because that went well, (laughs) well, it wasn't something that I I just came up with uh, by myself. I, I, I meant. I talk to people who are in this position every day. I also have my own lived experience, right? And I know that when you can get so far down in a hole that you want death would be preferable and and that maybe you're not in the right frame of mind to make that decision. But I've also seen people that their case could be made and that they're, they're physically, their body is destroyed. They're... A lot of these people are victims of the overprescribing of opiates, you know, back with the Purdue and the Sackler nonsense. Yeah. So th- they had some kind of an accident. Uh, they went through a bunch of surgeries that didn't work. They ended up uh, losing all their uh, financial stability from that. They ended up on the street and then they're cut off from their painkillers. So they, they had no choice but to turn to this toxic drug supply. Many of those people, I every second day I talk to them, I'm like, how are you doing? I'm like, I'm, this is it, man. Today's a day. Like I can't fucking take this anymore. Yeah. So, and, and, and yet I've seen, you know, you see them resuscitated. Uh, you see the ambulance show up and I, and I, I, I think to myself, like, are we going to get to a point with this continuation of, uh, you know, we continue to sort of try to maintain a framework of a healthcare system Without the, I mean, we're getting a, more funds here in a bit, but I have no confidence that they'll be used in, a, in an efficient manner. So will it get to the point where we almost have to start triaging? And then if you're triaging, do you give somebody the same rights that somebody has in like the MAID program, right? Where you're like, look, my life fucking sucks. I'm in pain 24 yeah. seven. The only way I have nobody, no, I'm in and out of shelters. I'm getting robbed. I'm getting beat up. I have to do crazy things that you don't want to even hear about to get my drugs. And I just, I've really had enough. Can you please stop resuscitating? You know? Yeah. And uh, I don't know how that would go uh, as far as, you know, especially in your position, right? Like, what do you do? Have a tattoo? You got to scan this person, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, on your forehead. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's on your forehead. I don't know. But uh, what are your thoughts as far as, because you mentioned earlier, you know, a lot of the response, of course, when you knock somebody, you knock all those opiates off the receptors, they go, it's, it, they feel like shit. They get angry, right? Yeah. Um, you know, do you have any, is this a thought that has crossed your mind? Um, what about uh, triaging this situation? Is there a way to do that? Uh. Well, it's funny you say that is so the way our system works is if you call an ambulance and they ask you a set series of questions and if you say you're short of breath, chest pain, let's say those two big keywords or unconscious, unresponsive, you're going to get it's called a delta or an echo response. So you're going to get an ambulance, a fire truck, a PRU possibly. So you're going to get three resources sent to you. So and it's funny because we've talked on the road about this fellow peers and I about because you get we get the call pops up and it tells you what it is and it'll say it's an overdose and then another call comes in and it'll be a stroke 65 year old signs and symptoms of a stroke but they're one step lower than that overdose and that's where I think it needs to be triaged differently where an overdose should get dropped down and be like sorry that's not we're not going to you. We're going to go to the 65 year old stroke or the heart attack or the kid that's broken his arm or fell off of something and has a broken neck or something like that. Cause I think that way of triaging would make more sense because these people did it to themselves. You know, it's not like, I hate to say that sounds very callous, but if this was a chosen thing that you did, but then you have these people that did not choose to 
have a stroke or to have an MI, you know, a heart attack and they need help, but they're not going to get it. And time is brain and time is muscle, right? So those two cases are very important. And don't get me wrong, that overdose is very likely they could die, but it's, uh, you know, like they're still breathing or, and they're usually in high volume areas. So there's inevitably somebody walking around with the Narcan kits. So it's, uh, I don't know. I think if you will, that'll never happen because <laughs> we're a socialist society and that would be very frowned upon. Right. <laughs> but like, that's what a lot of us on the road have said. Some people have been taken off calls for literally a stroke that sounded like a very viable stroke. And they were like, no, we're going to the stroke. We're not going to this 22 right. year old overdose, you know? So, okay. but it's a slippery slope, right? Because you can't let well, people die. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the honesty. I mean, that is, uh, that is not something that. Now uh, I'm going to get hate. <laughs> <laughs> what we, what we're looking for here is reality. And you just provided us with some reality there. Now, uh, Corey, first I'll get your, uh, your thoughts on that. What, uh, uh, what's your take on the, on what, uh, Amber is saying there? It's tough. I, we've talked about this before, Nathan. I think that we, as a society, make a distinction between something that between the, the long-term choices and the short-term immediate choices that put our lives at risk. And there's, there's, to me, there's judgment attached to that. Um, because the person who has the MI or has the stroke may have been smoking for for yeah. you know, 60 years and and eating McDonald's every <laughs> single day or drinking or all the rest. And 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 they have done it to themselves too. So there's this mm -hmm. thing about like the short-term risk versus long-term risk. But this is a position that that our greater society, I think, has put the individuals who see it in and the individuals that are trying to weed through this and trying to trying to help is that you are you're the one who is faced with that um, moral distress mm. of those incidents. And the politicians are not. The people who are the lawmakers and the decision makers are not. It's out there. And, and those are the real life sort of uh, really, really distressing, morally distressing decisions. And I think that, I think it comes down to class. I think it comes down to the way our, you know, that, that for lawmakers and politicians, when it's out there and it's happening to like this sort of stereotype of a population that's easier. Um, and yeah. then, then like Nathan said, like, then there's all these, there'll be overdoses, particularly that are more shocking and that are more prominent or that, that turn heads. And there sort of have to be some of those, I think, in order to to show that this is a a, a more uh, inclusive issue in our society. Mm -hmm. And I I just think, damn the powers that be for putting the healthcare provider in that position of having to make those choices or live with that or sit with that, like leaving the leaving the person who's having the stroke behind, or being isolated or being alone with someone who's you know, having a, an acute MI, et cetera. Those are more symptomatic of a, of a greater problem within our system. Yeah. 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 Well said. I wish <laughs> there was enough resources for everybody, obviously, right? If there was a perfect world and everything worked great, there would be hundreds of ambulances and there'd be tons of hospital beds. And, and it's not going, I think like we were talking about being jaded, you do get jaded. It's whenever you have a certain amount of the same call constantly, you're always going to be that call. The, yeah. You know, it just kind of, unfortunately is one of those things that you, you try to not to be jaded but you, about, but you will be because it's just a constant repetitive thing. And you're trying to protect yourself. And mm -hmm. the point you made there, Corey, is a, a, an important one in that these are policy decisions that are not being made because the people who are making the decisions, the, the allocation of resources, are not the ones who are faced with going home at night and trying to sleep after they wonder if they made the right call about whether or not they should have went to the overdose versus the MI or, you know, putting somebody who is already in a precarious and uh well it's a dangerous job that you're doing amber it's a 
job that requires a very uh, specific set of skills. You can't just find somebody to replace you easily. So every time you put this person, a person such as yourself in that ethical dilemma, it taxes you further and adds to uh, your overall stress burden. And, you know, I think we're suffering the consequences of on the ground personnel making those types of ethical decisions now where we're seeing people just saying, you know what, fuck this. I'm certainly not working full time. If I'm working at all, maybe I'll come back. I'll help you a little bit, but that's it. That's all I can take because the environment is insane. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny that you speak to like, uh, Corey, you mentioned the moral dilemma. It's a huge moral dilemma, right? And if you didn't know about the rest of the calls happening, you'd be like, yeah, whatever. It's my job. I'll go do that. But you do, (laughs) you know, and if you've been doing it long enough, I totally understand who's not getting the help or there's a senior on the floor for six hours because with a fractured hip, you know, like that literally happens all the time because you're going to respond to the same person you picked up like four times. So it's that part. Like I don't miss that. I find hard when I go back and I start (laughs) and I'd be like, okay, you're not here. You know, and I'm, that's where it's, I don't know how you fix that. That one's quite challenging. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, and it, it, it's ultimately if something went wrong, wrong in any number of ways that you want to look at it, it it's you that's answerable to it. It's the, the licensed professional who's answerable to it or would have to, you know, potentially speak to their their choices and their actions that they made in that, yeah. in that incident. And I get that. And I don't, you know, I, I think there has to be accountability, obviously, in the job. But but it's it's so hard to reach the policy level that has directly trickled down and impacted yeah. the day, the shift level. Um, mm-hmm. and and again, not to not to make it all about the politicians either, but it's just like, oh, it it uh that seems to be the side that doesn't have to be spoken for or or it's so rare to hear that now and i mean i'm kind of encouraged in in manitoba this week just yesterday yeah. they, they voted in an indigenous premier uh Wong yep. canoe who's um, made some big promises about reform of the healthcare system and yep. about resources towards the healthcare system and really going to try to move that forward we will obviously we'll have to see but you think about a place like Manitoba where it's really rural and really spread out and yeah. um, apart from sort of like downtown Winnipeg kind of a thing. It's just, it's interesting. And that, that speaks to this recognition, I think of, of the, Hey, we need, we need to reform how our systems are working right now. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. And don't get me wrong. We do not get to choose which calls we go to. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make that clear. We do go to the yeah. ones we are told to. Yeah, of course. <laughs> we don't have any choice. <laughs> yeah. Just uh, one more question here for you, Amber, before we let you go. And we're just, uh, we're curious as to kind of what the zeitgeist is in Alberta right now. Uh, maybe you could speak to, to, to the feeling of, uh, you know, what it's like being in Edmonton as far as what are, what's the thoughts, uh, the general thoughts, of the population on, the toxic drug crisis are they is this being recognized as a is the onus being put on the individual do they see the difference between an opioid crisis and a toxic drug crisis what's the what's the attitude like there is it different is it the same just curious what your thoughts are there I wouldn't say I have the best grasp on that, but I do know like Kenny, like the conservative government, they cut a ton of funding for, they cut a bunch of safe injection sites and that actually caused a huge problem because there was a big influx of more drugs on, IV drugs on the street, users on the street. He cut tons of them everywhere. It's like, no, we shouldn't have any safe injection sites there they're not helping or whatever. And so that actually created a pretty significant rise in, in um, overdoses, I think in Calgary and Edmonton. And then like, then they have just recently started bringing those back. But I don't know. There's it's a very conservative population, but Edmonton's a bit more liberal, I'd say. So they actually really fight for those resources. And I think they, we have some really good community resources for our downtown. Like I'm talking about our downtown population, more addicts and stuff, not your 
you know, your recreational user that overdoses or somebody, you know, takes something. It's, I'm talking about your, your downtown population that has mental health concerns and they're addicted. There is a ton of resources in Edmonton, I have to say. Is there enough? No, there could always be more. But I think what we're talking about too is like you need that willingness of the people to actually want help, right? And I know we do. We have safe injection sites and I know we have a large program like you do with giving out Suboxone and um, methadone programs are quite big, but I haven't seen as many people using them as I have in the past, which is kind of interesting. Mm. But it seems like the the addict population seems to be a lot younger than it used to be because you were talking about the people that had that chronic pain and they're using it, you know, that those people seem to be the ones that are more on like a methadone based program. And now it's the younger people that are just doing drugs kind of idea. So I don't know, like the resources, there is resources, but you have to want to use those resources as well. And I don't know how, well they're promoted they know everybody knows they can get narcan kits from us we carry narcan kits and um on the ambulances and police carry them like pretty much everybody carries them transit yeah okay well that's good thanks for your input there did you have any more questions for uh amber before we let her go Corey? i don't think so this is this has been great you know we we, we oftentimes we talk to probably the largest population we've talked to have been nurses and people, you know, in with ER backgrounds like myself. And, but we, we, I don't think we've talked to a sort of an active first responder. So I really applaud your courage for having this conversation with us and your honesty and, and telling us what you see. And it's not about sharing war stories. It's not about glorifying anything. Um, yeah. But just like the, actual experience of it i think people need to need to hear and 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 just kind of sit with because again people's interactions with you amber either they are it is themselves on their worst day or it is their family member's worst day or maybe they're a bystander and they've seen something but so rarely do we hear people tell their story in in your position Mm -hmm. i don't think that's i don't think that's done enough I was at a, a an indigenous healing ceremony for Truth and Reconciliation Day. And what struck me was that the healers there, and they had come from out of town and they performed the ceremony. And one of the first things that they spoke of afterwards was what they have to do in order to maintain their well-being as healers. Mm-hmm. And they were telling this to a very large group of people that they had just kind of performed the ceremony with. And I thought wow, we in the, going back to the healthcare system, we are so hesitant to ever be that vulnerable or that honest about what we need to do to heal or what the impact of healing other people has on us and our well-being. Yeah. I mm-hmm. thought there was something to be learned from that, just being able to to share, being able to speak that. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. Yeah, no, it's important. Uh, well said, Corey. And uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. This has been uh, great as far as uh, another fantastic perspective. Thank you very much, Amber, for giving us a little bit of your time and for being so open and uh, honest about what you do. It's a tough job and uh, I'm, glad yeah. you, I'm glad you're out there. And yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Thanks, Amber. Thanks, Nathan.